Good morning, church. While I was reading in a commentary by R. Kent Hughes this week, I came across what I thought was a remarkable story uh, about a message that was given to the British House of Commons by an Anglican bishop in the 17th century. And I want to tell you that story and ask you to think about it in terms of what if this same message was being given to our U.S. House of Representatives today. Okay? So hear it through that lens and, and have fun with this thought experiment. So what happened was in 1621, um, Lancelot Andrews, who was an Anglican bishop, was asked to preach at the opening session of the House of Commons in Westminster Abbey. And he, what, he looked the political leaders of his day in the face and told them that God was among them and that he would be their judge for how they discharged their public office. If they would recognize the Lord among them, they would not need to fear, but if they ignored him and his word, they would have reason to tremble. Specifically, he told them that there were four things they needed to do if they were going to have a clear conscience standing before God one day. He told them that first, they need to believe that the Lord was present among them. Second, they needed to behave like they believed that the Lord was present among them. So, you know there's a difference. They had to orient themselves around the reality of the Lord's presence. And then fourth, they needed to govern in such a way that the Lord would approve of what they did. In other words, even though there was a king upon the English throne, they were to legislate in such a way that showed that the highest king of that land was God. So can you imagine if our U.S. House of Representatives and Senate governed in that way? Can you imagine if Jay Inslee led the state of Washington that way? Or if President Biden wrote executive orders and signed legislation in that light? The entire nation from coast to coast, the entire state of Washington would be blessed if that were the case. Though not everybody would say that they were blessed, they'd still be blessed nonetheless. Well, you see, the God of the Bible, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is the king whose glory and rule are a fact. It's not up for interpretation. It's not up for debate. It's the way things are. And not only are his glory and his rule fact, but they are enduring. And not only are they enduring, but they are enduring forever. And this is the truth that Jesus tells us to make a central feature of our prayers as his redeemed people. And so today we find ourselves finishing our look at the Lord's Prayer together and invite you to open scripture with me to Matthew 6. And specifically, we're going to look at the doxology that Jesus gives us as the closing words of that model prayer. And we'll see this point that the glory and the reign of God endure forever. So in Matthew 6, I'll begin reading in verse 9 and go through verse 13. These are the words of Christ. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And you may have noticed as you followed along in your English Standard Version that the last words of the Lord's Prayer that I read aren't in your Bibles except as a footnote in verse 13. In fact, if you look at that footnote together, you'll see it says that some manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 
And that footnote, that's our sermon text for today. Um, it's not part of any modern translation except for the New King James Version, which is why I've included the New King James Version's uh, record of it at the top of your outline in your bulletin. But that, of course, raises the question, well, why is it part of the King James and the New King James Version, but it's not part of the ESV or any other modern translation? And in order to explain that, and in order to explain why I'm preaching a whole sermon on what I believe are original words that the Lord gave us in this prayer, I need to tell you a story, a short story, about the best book in the world, which, of course, would be the Bible you hold in your hands. The reason this is so important is because it's your story. It's your story because if you are in Christ, then you've been saved through the word of God that he has preserved for you through these long ages. And in order to understand this story, you need to keep two words clear in your mind. Those words are inspiration and preservation. Okay, inspiration and preservation. You see, Apostle Peter says that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, if anything is clear about the scriptures in the scriptures, is that's, that they're not just the product of men. They're, they're the product of God working through men in a process that we call inspiration. And the most biblical definition you can get of inspiration is what the uh, Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy when he says that all scripture is breathed out by God. As God breathed out, he inspired, and you can almost hear it in that word, inspired, inspired all scripture. Now, when the last word of the New Testament was written by the last apostle, inspiration was finished. The Bible was complete. The Old and the New Testaments, nothing would be added to them again. He would never inspire another word. Since that time, the scriptures have been kept pure by God through the process that we understand as preservation. It's preservation. Preservation is God's work of providence to preserve his word just like he said. In other words, God will not allow his word to disappear or to be corrupted. We can be confident that the Bible that we have even in our translation in our hands, is an accurate and authoritative translation of what God said thousands of years ago because God preserves his word, the very word that he inspired. The psalmist declares, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Now, why does God do that? Why, why does he firmly fix his word in the heavens? Well, it's so that he would be giving it to us who are his people here on earth that we might have it. And so every good translation is gonna take great pains to accurately communicate God's inspired and preserved word. And so we're confident that the Bibles we have in our hands are the true word of God. And we're not the first people to think that. The Westminster Divines in the Confession of Faith wrote this in their chapter about the Bible. They said that the Old Testament in Hebrew, okay, and the New Testament in Greek, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages are therefore authentical. So we have God's words preserved for us down to the smallest letter and pen stroke as Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. Not one iota, not one dot will pass away, okay, till all is accomplished. So, 
why do most English translations today not include the last words of the Lord's Prayer? And here's where our very short story comes into play. Feel free not to take any notes. I can give you resources if you'd like on both sides because not everybody agrees with me on this, but I just want you to enjoy the story of your Bible for just a moment. I'm gonna give it to you in four short chapters. Chapter one, God gives the New Testament. Okay, this is a story particularly that concerns the Greek New Testament because the Hebrew Old Testament was meticulously and rigorously preserved by scribes both before, during, and after the time of Christ. And for the purpose of our story, there's almost no debate about that. There's no debate about what words belong in our Old Testament, okay? It's a fixed testament. Now, the Greek New Testament came several hundred years after the Old Testament was recognized as complete. The apostles wrote their books during the first century. They wrote them in Greek. By the end of the first century, when the last apostle was gone, the last word was penned, the Greek New Testament was completed, inspiration was finished. Chapter 2, the New Testament is copied. Almost immediately after the apostles wrote their books and letters, their writings began to be copied. Why? God's people really like God's word. <laughs> so they copied it. But due to use and age, by the end of the second century, the original writings of the apostles had passed away. They, they didn't exist anymore. They were, they were old, they had been well used, they were gone. However, a lot of copying was done. And for the next 1,400 years roundabout, copies of the Greek New Testament that were pretty much similar to one another were grouped into what we could call families. Families. Now today, we have about 6,000 surviving fragments or whole Greek New Testament copies. 90% of those are part of a group that we would call, we could call family B. Family B. Why? Because it was preserved largely in the Eastern Byzantine Empire that spanned for a thousand years, okay, until about the year 1500. Now, the Western church spoke Latin. They abandoned Greek, and so their scriptures were primarily copied and transmitted and read in Latin. But in the Byzantine Empire over in the East, the Greek New Testament was preserved and copies, which is why we have so many copies in uh, from there, from that family. But something happened in the 1500s that really shook up the Western church. You may have heard of it. It's a little something we like to call the Reformation. And what the reformers did is they said, hey, back to the sources. So they went back to their Hebrew Bibles. They went back to the Greek New Testaments. And when they did, they used family B because that's the Greek New Testament that in his providence God had preserved. Family B was the basis on which all New Testaments were translated, including into English, from the time of the Reformation on until chapter 3. An older copy is discovered. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. So in the mid-1800s, one Greek manuscript of the New Testament was discovered in Egypt that turns out to have been about 100 years older about 100 years older than the earliest one in family B. And there were several differences at various places throughout the New Testament. But because it had a whole lot in common with another manuscript that was about that old, those two were the basis for another family. Let's call that family A, because it was associated with A for Alexandria in Egypt. Okay, so family B is most of our surviving New Testament Greek manuscripts. Family A is a much smaller number, but they're about 100 years older. Now, in spite of their differences, they agree in about 85% of all 
of all places. And where they disagree is by and large pretty insignificant. But one of the significant places they disagree is the last line of the Lord's Prayer. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Chapter 4, last chapter. New rules, older is better. So at the, around, the end of the, around the end of the 1800s, the Bible translation game changes. Translation uh, scholars decide that the oldest manuscripts should be considered better, and because family A wins out on age by about 100 years, those become the basis of translations of the New Testament, which is why all modern translations, including our ESV, use family A's record over family B's, except for the New King James Version. But not everyone agrees that the oldest manuscripts are necessarily the best. Some believe that the number and quality of manuscripts should factor in as much as age. I, I personally, and I'm only speaking for myself, I'm personally convinced that God's providence in preserving family B as the dominant Greek New Testament throughout church history, I think that's pretty significant. I believe that this line of the Lord's Prayer is original. That's why I'm preaching a whole sermon on it. But whether family A or family B wins out, it doesn't really matter that much. <laughs> Why? Because the Bible you hold in your hands, whether ESV, NASB, NKJV, pretty much pick it. It's a miracle. It's reliable. It's accurate. Because God preserves his word. That's what you need to take away from this. I just want you to know why I'm doing a sermon on your footnote. <laughs> okay? And it's actually a pretty cool story. But God preserves his word, just like he said, and that's actually an incredible reason we have to praise him. Can you imagine if you didn't have a preserved and reliable scripture in front of you? Oh, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to face life with near the confidence that we can. In fact, the reason God's able to preserve his word the way he does throughout all time is because of the attributes that we see in this doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer. So Jesus' disciples asked him to help them know how to pray, and, and every single Christian since then has struggled also to understand how to pray. And the reason the Lord's Prayer is so enduring is it's because it's our divinely inspired model prayer. Jesus never intended us to just repeat the Lord's Prayer verbatim and go, well, there we go, that's our communion with God. In fact, the words just before the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, in Matthew 6 are, are Jesus warning us against rote, mechanical, mindless praying. He intends to give us these prayers as the types of prayers that we should be praying as his people in order to have full, rich communion with God. He wants us to know how to live as his kingdom people because I don't remember if, I don't know if you remember about four years ago when we started getting into the Sermon on the Mount. I don't get to preach that often. But when we, we, we did four years ago, I told you that the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, really you need to think about it as the king, Jesus, giving us his citizens of his kingdom kind of a manifesto on what it means to be his people in his world. Well, a whole lot of that being his people in the world depends on our communion with him, which is why prayer is such a prominent part of this sermon. And when it comes to our relationship with God, it, just like in any healthy relationship, there's going to be communication. Every single Christian is saved through Christ into a relationship with God, adopted by the Father and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And our daily communication with our Father as his sons and daughters involves our hearing him speak to us in his word 
and our speaking back to him in prayer. The Lord's Prayer gives us every category of communication with our Father that we could ever want. And so we begin by exalting our Father in adoration. All the adoration we could ever give to God is summarized in the words, hallowed be your name. We pray that his rule, his reign, and his, his honor would fill the creation and one day be visible in Christ's return. And that's summarized by the prayer, your kingdom come. We plead that the gospel would fill the world, and in praying that, we are committing ourselves to expanding the, the reach of the gospel in the world, which is what we're praying when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we bring our Father our needs, both our physical needs and our spiritual needs, which is what we pray when we say, Lord, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. We, we pray finally for the Father's protecting love to guard us both from temptation within and the tempter without. We pray for his grace to live holy lives as his children who love him and are loved by him. Those are the kinds of prayers we're called to pray. But have you noticed that every conversation ends somewhere? Imagine if you're out to lunch with a friend and your friend's in the middle of just a, what you think is a really great conversation and without warning they just get up and they walk out. And you're just like, well, I guess, I guess they had to go somewhere. Um, maybe they'll send me a text later to find out. I, I hope. I, is, did I say something? Now, where you usually end your conversation? Goodbye. Well, that's a good signal that the conversation's over. Or, hey, I've got to go to a, an appointment. I'll see you later. Hope you have a good day. We end our conversation somewhere. And in our conversation with God, the best place that we could possibly end it is actually where we began, by exalting God. And that's exactly what Jesus teaches us to do in the Lord's Prayer when he says, end like this, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We, are, we call this doxology. And the scriptures are filled with doxologies. And this doxology actually gives us the reasons why we can bring our prayers to God with confidence and boldness. This doxology in the Lord's Prayer is especially sweet because it highlights three perfections of our Father. And, and these perfections, these attributes of God, have major bearing on our lives as his people in the world. And if you understand what they are, they're actually a tremendous comfort to you when you're walking through the challenges and trials that you face. So let's look at these three together. First, we pray that God's is the kingdom. Okay, pop quiz. He has a kingdom, so he is a king. You get it. Awesome. Perfect. Top marks. When we pray, we come to God as his kingdom people, looking to our gracious ruler and father for all we need. And, and that's why the word for is there at the beginning. We pray all these things, our daily bread, protect us, deliver us from evil, for or because yours is the kingdom. In other words, because you rule, we can come to you with these things. You are the king. But what does that mean? What does that mean? And then practically, what, what are the effects of that in our lives? Well, and this is where Jesus brings us back to verse 10. If you look up at verse 10, what do we pray? Your kingdom come. Now, I, you may or may not remember what we saw when we looked at that petition of the Lord's Prayer. But we saw that the best way that we can define the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is to say that the kingdom of God is the reign of God. So the kingdom of God is the reign of God. It's the sphere 
the domain in which his dominion and his authority are exercised. We also saw that when it comes to his kingdom, we need to keep three words clear in our minds. Okay? Already, not yet. Does that ring a bell? Already, not yet. You see, the kingdom's already here, and it's not yet here the way that it will be. So in Luke 11, Jesus says, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Remember your Gospels. What do we see Jesus doing a whole lot of? He's casting out demons by the finger of God, which means that the kingdom of God came with Jesus. We rightly understand that when Jesus showed up, he's the king. He's the king of the kingdom. He's the one that in Psalm 2, it says that the father set on Zion his holy hill. He rules. The kingdom of God came with him, but it didn't come the way the people expected, which was there was so much confusion and it ended with a crucifixion. But we also see that there's a future aspect of the kingdom that's not yet here as it will be when Jesus returns. So we have an already kingdom that's not yet here as it will be when Christ is seated on the throne on earth and reigning over the whole world among his people. This is what Jesus tells us will happen when he comes back. In Matthew 25, he says that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So he already reigns and he's coming to reign. That's the nature of the kingdom. But the whole basis for our calling as a church is actually this great truth that the God to whom we pray and the God who sends us into the world, he is the king. So remember your great commission. How does it begin? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all the nations. Why? The nations are his. They're his. They just don't know it yet. So go and tell them. Go tell them the good news that they are conquered not by a king who comes with a sword, but right now they can be conquered by a king who comes with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Through the love of God in the gospel, the nations can be saved and enter into his kingdom. That's why the warning in Psalm 2 is what it is. Hear, O kings, be wise, O rulers of the earth. Kiss the Son. In other words, come to him with allegiance, in faith, trust, submitting to him. Receive mercy, lest you perish in the way. Today is the day of salvation, says our God. We are saved by and we obey a Christ who is reigning now and who is king of the nations now, and he sends us to those nations to share the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord and to call sinners to repentance and to receive every single blessing that comes in that kingdom, and there are many. This is good news for a reason. We do it because God is the king, and it's his world, and when he comes back, he's receiving it as his inheritance. The great bishop J.C. Ryle writes, the kingdoms of this world are the rightful property of our Father. That's why the doxology begins the way it does. Yours is the kingdom. And why in Psalm 2, the nations are raging against God and against his anointed. Now, they're raging against him, trying to burst his bonds because they're under his bonds. And they don't like it too much. If you haven't noticed, nations that don't like Christ and his rule don't tend to want to submit to his rule. Right? That makes sense. They don't like it, so they chafe against it. That's why they devote an entire month in the middle of the year to celebrating 
uh, LGBTQ pride and flying flags with a symbol that God actually gave to Noah as a covenant. <laughs> and they fly it around you know, the whole world on their embassies during the month of June. That's exactly the kind of thing we would expect from raging nations. Nations that rebel against God chafe against the idea that they are accountable to him for how they live. And they put scary labels like Christian nationalism on the idea that we don't have full autonomy, but that we exist because God says we do, and we actually need to follow his rules because his word is the standard. But that's okay. The nations can rage. The nations can rage. Sometimes it looks scary, but what does God who sits in the heavens do in Psalm 2 when they rage? He, he laughs. And friends, he belly laughs. <laughs> Are you kidding? I've set my king on Zion, he says, my holy hill. So take note. Be warned. There is a way to receive mercy. Please heed it. But it doesn't change the facts. In fact, the nations were raging when they crucified the Lord's anointed. And you know what? They were doing God's will as they did so. And it was because they raged to the point of crucifying the Lord's anointed that you and I have salvation today. Why there is redemption. Because it was that he was humbled to the point of death, even as we're told death on a cross, so that he would be raised and exalted. And in his exaltation, we're told that he's given the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the White House and in the Taj Mahal and in anywhere else that you can put your hands, the Kremlin included, and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. You see, the best laid plans of mice and men can't touch his reign, for he's the king of kings. And we don't need to fear because he's a good king. He's a good king. In fact, in love for our neighbors, whether those neighbors are right next door or down at City Hall or at work or in Olympia or wherever, wherever your neighbor is found, we love them as salt and light in the world. As those who, because we live under the reign of Christ, do good in a world that's decaying, and so preserve it. Where we, with open mouths, share the gospel and declare the glory of the light of Jesus, by which there's hope in a world of darkness. We seek the welfare of the city where God has placed us, serving our communities in a way that seeks their good and does so with the gospel on our lips. We live as people of the truth, and we, res we refuse to speak lies because darkness flourishes with deceit. I've been thinking a lot lately about the fact that more and more businesses and school districts, even in Yakima and workplaces, are requiring their employees to submit to preferred pronoun and transgender policies that are actually giving witness to lies. And as Christians, we must refuse graciously, winsomely, clearly. Why? Because the reign of our king extends into every relationship, every workplace, every school district, every courthouse. His reign doesn't get checked at the door, and we live like it. We're people of the truth, and loving our neighbors means being honest with them. We invest in the lives of those neighbors and those colleagues and show them true love and what it looks like to raise their families in the kingdom of God. And as we do, we pray and we seek. Okay? There's a difference between being prepared for and actually seeking out opportunities to share the only hope that they will ever have, which is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
because not one person enters into the kingdom except by faith in the Jesus whose gospel must be spoken, that must be heard, that must be believed. So Jesus is teaching us here in this doxology to have confidence in our prayers because ours is the God who reigns. And so we pray with bold praise. We pray with bold praise because history is heading, if you haven't noticed, in a very particular direction. And it's summarized well by the voices in heaven. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. But you know something else? He's not just the king. He is the almighty king. Why is that such good news? Well, there have been many impotent kings throughout world history who have the right to reign, but not the power to do so. They get deposed, they get overthrown, their kingdoms topple. But when it comes to the king of kings and lord of lords, he is not impotent at all. He is all-powerful. Yours is the kingdom and the power, we are told to pray. And that word translated power in this doxology is the same word that we get our English dynamite. Now, you know something about dynamite if you've ever been to Moxie in the 4th of July, okay? Uh, But let's say you're out for a walk in Moxie, another thought experiment, and you happen to come across a stick of dynamite. Do you pick it up and go, hey, this is cool. Maybe we'll use it as a dive stick at the swimming pool. Do you hand it to your son who's with you and say, hey, buddy, have fun? Or do you probably phone it in and wait for for the bomb people to come and get it because you don't want your son to get his hands on it because he will blow himself up? (laughs) Of course that's what you do because dynamite is powerful and you know it. Dynamite, if you get enough of it together, it can actually move a mountain. Imagine the power of the God who made all the mountains. He's the one to whom we pray. So I would ask, friend, if you ever get sleepy in your prayers sometimes, perhaps you may even struggle to pray at all because it's, it's, it's actually much easier to open your Bible and read a few chapters and then run out of time and not actually get any time in communion with the Lord in prayer. And that's a one-way relationship. We're called to read and hear and pray and speak. Do you ever get bored praying? I know I struggle. But I also know that if we remember that the God to whom we're praying is this almighty king who rules and rules well and has the power to do all that he pleases, that actually livens things up a bit. That's not a boring relationship. Yes, it's by faith. We don't see it. We don't see him as we will, but it's awfully exciting. So no wonder that the 24 elders in the book of Revelation fall down and say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and is, for you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Our God is in the heavens, the psalmist says. He does all that he pleases. And once Joe Vickers quoted that, and now I think of grilled cheeses, because he said something about that once. (laughs) Friends, when we pray, Jesus teaches us to consciously think about the fact that our Father in heaven not only rules, but he has the power to rule perfectly. And do you know how he uses that power? He uses it to give you daily bread, to give you daily forgiveness, to give you daily protection, because he loves you. He loves you. See, I don't know all that you're facing in your life right now. I don't know what the secret sorrows of your heart are that you haven't had the guts to share with anybody because it's too painful. But what I do know is that the God to whom we pray is powerful and he promises never to harm you. 
we don't always get that. That takes a lot of faith sometimes because he doesn't promise to show us how that all works together just yet. But we have a preserved and inspired word that makes no bones about it. He will always keep you. He will always take even your evil circumstances to do his good will and build you up. We can believe him on his word because he's the God who is almighty. And finally, he's glorious. He's glorious. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now, this is the big picture of our prayers. This is really, when you get down to it, this is what we're after. The reason we exist, the reason we pray, hallowed be your name, is that God would be glorified. And we want to give God the glory because we are never more fully human than when we imitate the Christ in whom we are now the new humanity. In Adam, all died, but in Christ, all will be made alive. And when we're raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places, we are that new humanity that is being made new until that day when that newness is complete. And glorifying God is what Jesus did. It's what he always did. To the point where he said, my bread is to do the will of my Father. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now, where do you think he learned that? Because a couple verses later, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul knew to glorify God in everything because that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus does and what he does in us. To aim for the glory of God is to aim to show God in how we live. We use the word glory, but we don't always know how to define it. Well, we get a pretty good idea of what it looks like in Exodus 34 when Moses prays, show me your glory. And God says, I'll pass before you, but I'm only going to show you my back. You can't take the full thing. And I will declare to you my name. Well, when you hear God talking about his name in the Bible, you should put an equal sign between that and his perfections or his attributes. Who God is, is represented in his name. And when God declares his name and says, that's my glory, that's where we understand that the glory of God is the display of God. That's about as simple and biblical a definition as you can get. The glory of God is the display of God. It's what we see about him. Habakkuk says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Because God's glory fills the earth when God is known, when he is understood, when he is seen and honored for who he is. And may that day come in its fullness. But until then, how should we now live if we actually mean what we pray, that yours is the glory forever? Well, I'd suggest that we should take deep stock of whether we're actively seeking to make Christ known to the people in our lives. Because if God's glory is the display of God, and we're the people who know who he is, then we have the power to either manifest that glory to others or veil it. We were saved to manifest it. Is it our aim that every square inch of our lives, of our homes, of our jobs, our relationships, thoughts, family lives would conform to the word of God? Is that what we're after consciously? Because that won't happen by accident. But when we pray, yours is the glory, that's a declaration that that needs to be front and center. When you pray, yours is the glory forever, do it with the express determination. 
In fact, I would even say do it with the dogmatic insistence that who God is is going to be shown in you because that's what we're for. All is his because he is all in all. Nothing held back. No pet sin is off the table. No lifestyle choice. All is there before our God who is all in all, whose glory and rule endure forever, and we are forever his. Now we come to that last word. From the time we're tiny people, how do we learn to end all of our prayers? In Jesus' name, amen. That's pretty good. They actually taught us right in Sunday school. We were focused on the goldfish crackers, but they actually brought some really good teaching along with it, because that's exactly how Jesus teaches us to end our prayers here in the Lord's Prayer. Amen. What does it mean, though? Because so often it becomes meaningless in our mouths through repetition. But the answer isn't to ditch it. It's to ask, what does it mean? It's to rethink it and then double down on what it is. It comes from a Hebrew word that means, so be it. I know that many of us know that. We pray it after we've given God our praise and our needs because we want him to do what we've asked. I mean, that makes sense, right? You don't pray something unless you would actually like God to do the thing you've asked. And that's why it's really important to let the covers of scripture be the boundaries of your prayers. Pray the kinds of things that fall in line with his will. If you're thinking about asking God to protect you as you go into sin, don't, don't do that and don't pray that, okay? Rather, just don't go into sin, right? It's kind of like what we saw last week. Lead me not into temptation as I'm diving headlong into it. No, but when we pray in line with scripture, we pray boldly and we pray amen because we want our God who is all powerful to use that power to do those things. We recognize that he's the almighty king and he will do as he will, which is why sometimes the answer to those prayers is no or wait. A lot of the times it's yes, but why? You see, the Father hears our prayers and he promises to do his will, but he doesn't promise to do his will in exactly the way that we've asked him. In 3 John 2, the Apostle John is writing to his friend Gaius, and he says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. So John is praying, Lord, keep Gaius healthy in body and soul. But God hasn't promised that Gaius won't get sick or go through trials. But the Apostle John prays it because that's a good thing to pray for someone. When we pray amen, what we're doing is we're presenting our request to God, but in a way that recognizes that he will do as he will and that submits to that being okay. Of course, whether we like it or not, it's always okay that God's going to do his will. But it's a lot more sweet for us when we go into a prayer knowing, God, really, truly, it's okay with me that you do your will. This is how Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. If it's possible, let this cup pass. Not my will, but yours be done. Paul prayed three times that the Lord would take away this satanic thorn. And the answer was no. But I will glorify my name in you. And Paul said, okay. We don't always know how to pray as we ought, but we can be sure that if we mean amen in the way that scripture means amen, it'll be okay. Better to take two minutes to wrestle through that in your soul and pray one prayer that you mean than to take those same two minutes and pray ten that you only mean eight of. 
Amen, we need to rethink it. It's actually pretty rich. This doxology teaches us to exalt God trustingly because his glory and rule endures forever and he is our trustworthy father. As I close our look at the Lord's Prayer by praying this morning, I'm going to rewrite some words that Albert Muller wrote in his book on the Lord's Prayer and turn them into prayer. So we're finished now with our sermons on the Lord's Prayer, but by God's grace, we'll be praying these the rest of our lives. We'll dive next week into fasting. So you can pray for me because I'll be awfully hungry. I'm just kidding. I'm not, <laughs> not planning on fasting about it, but it'll be good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you with thankful praise. We thank you also, Lord Jesus, for the rich and weighty words that you teach us to pray in this great prayer in Matthew 6. This prayer truly turns the world upside down, and we praise you for overturning the kingdom and principalities and powers of this world and exalting your reign in all the earth. We pray in hope expecting your kingdom to come in fullness at your return, even as we cheerfully acknowledge your reign in our world now. We thank you, Father, for your compassionate care for us as we depend on you for our every meal. We praise you for nothing is more sacred than your holy name. And we glory in the gospel as we remember that you forgive our sins and deliver us from the powers of darkness. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We exalt you in trust that you will do all that you please for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.